this sarcastic, angry question in the middle of this psalm has been redeemed. Why? Because in the very middle, he says what? Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Because Jesus Christ died for your sins. The answer is yes. Someday we're going to rise from the dead and praise him. If you know the resurrection is coming, it's impossible to be in utter darkness. Today on the Songtime broadcast, we'll continue our year in review as Timothy Keller takes us to possibly one of the most difficult psalms we covered this past summer. Psalm 88 deals with the immense emotional suffering of the author, and one that I think reflects a lot of us, but also our understanding of what Christ did for us on our behalf. You won't want to miss it, but first... We'll be joined by Gavin Ortland as we talk about the right hills to die on and how to deal with conflict in the church. The many voices are coming together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. I've got to make a slight confession to you, and it's probably not one that you're unaware of. Uh, the fact is, I have uh, some strong opinions, and I've been known Uh, to be open at sharing those opinions with others. But I've learned throughout the years, especially here at Songtime and, of course, as a pastor, they got to be careful. I I don't get offended if people disagree with me or people don't um, hold my positions. I can talk without being offended if somebody shares something that I don't agree with. But I have found that it's often not the case on the other extreme. In fact, it's it's actually very hard to talk about your opinions when they conflict with somebody else because inevitably somebody is going to be offended by them. In fact, when I was a kid growing up, we used to joke about the fact that if you got 10 people on a committee, put 10 people on a board, you would find out that they would come out with 11 different opinions and uh, that is why a lot of things never got done accordingly. But the truth is, We all have opinions, and the last several years have made that more than obvious because uh, the opinions that have been shared, not only in the mainstream media, but amongst friends groups, have caused a great deal of division, even amongst this supposed body of Christ that we are one. We all believe in one God, one Savior, one Spirit, one gospel, many voices, one message, Uh, but we do not always get along. And therein lies the problem. How is it possible that we can be believers and not agree, or at least not uh, agree to, to disagree and still be loving and kind? Well, our guest today is an interview with Gavin Ortland, who's written a book called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. This is a case for theological triage. And in his book, he talks about the importance of the unity that we have in Christ, not just the disunity. It's a great resource, and one I asked Gavin to explain the background behind his own story, because I think it's actually really interesting how he came to this conclusion. It kind of tracks with my own understanding of of where I was raised and how I came. You'll hear about that a little bit in this interview. But Gavin Ortland here is talking about his book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, I think, a perfectly timed publication for this year, and a great conversation from earlier this year. Here is Gavin Ortland. Yeah, the the short version is um, there were just some secondary doctrines where my own personal study led me to a position that was inconvenient. 
uh, you know, in terms of my context. Okay. And uh, so I was in a, a wonderful Presbyterian context from which I benefited so much, but I became Baptistic in my view of baptism. And then and I share all these in the book, you know, in the context of ordination, uh, my views on the end times mm-hmm. were uh, different from some of the pastors who were overseeing my ordination process, not the central things of the end times, but some of the details. And so I think there were a few other episodes too I mentioned in their book where just, you know, just what I've experienced is if you just think for yourself and study, usually there will be times where you arrive upon a view that is inconvenient to hold based Mm -hmm. upon the context that you're in. And uh, I just, uh, you know, so I think what drew me into this topic was not anything theoretical, but just the practical reality of on the ground functioning as a pastor within evangelicalism, you bump into these issues where, uh, you know, okay, we've got some differences on secondary or tertiary doctrines. So now what do we do? And there's, I don't see any way to avoid having to face those questions. And I'll say one other thing, and that's my study of church history, which is Mm -hmm. a great passion of mine, has made me aware that there's some ways where a default sort of assumed normal view within evangelicalism on a secondary or tertiary doctrine can be different from what most Christians in church history would have thought. That's especially true in the end times conversations, for example. So that's another layer of just, you know, um, it just, I think, speaks to the need for careful study to make sure we're drawing the boundaries in the right place, because sometimes we can exclude other Christians uh, without even realizing that it's unhelpful to do so. Mm. I grew up in a very, uh, very conservative church, and uh, you understand probably uh, where I'm coming from in that regard. And as a result, we didn't we didn't fellowship much at all outside of our particular denomination. We were very uh, closed off. We had uh, five Baptist churches all in the same street, and we didn't even play softball with the other churches. Uh, that, we were very, very exclusive. And uh, I came out to New England. I grew up in the Midwest, and I came out to New England. And I realized I was all alone. There was no one like me in anywhere within the vicinity of where I'm living now. And I started reaching across the aisle, reaching across to going to various churches. And I found uh, I, my whole trajectory changed drastically. But ultimately, it came out of a result of the fact that we're really isolated out here in New England and the Northeast. Uh, our bonds and relationships are really about those who reach back. And I've really had to work through a lot of these issues that were really kept on a shelf. They were pristine. They were precise, uh, but they were on a shelf and they had collected some dust. I had to take them off and really work through them and realize that a lot of them were not as essential to the core doctrines as I had originally thought. I've had a very similar experience to you serving in California, especially the part of California that I'm located, the Ojai Valley, where it is not a spiritually vibrant place with lots of large churches. It's a very spiritually needy place. And one of the things I'm grateful for about that is it's forced me and encouraged me to have, I just, before this uh, conversation came from a meeting with some of the other pastors in Ojai, and we've developed this wonderful sense of cohesion. We're doing an event this Saturday night at our church, uh, a revival discussion over dinner, and we're all partnering together for that. And I think it's just this sense of when you're in a, a more challenging environment, you can't afford to fight on the wrong hills. Mm-hmm. You you sort of need to, to partner more. When you're living within this big umbrella of Christendom, then you can 
feel the pressure less acutely about our need to partner together and unify. And so that may be one of the, the positives of being in a context like this, because it is good to wrestle with those questions. It's there's something that doesn't feel right. If you've got the Baptist church on this block, the Methodist church on this block, the Presbyterian church on this block, et cetera, et cetera. And they're not coordinating or talking in any way. Um, and there's just an aloofness from each other. It doesn't seem like that's what Christ would want for us. And it's a lot easier to uh, to paint your enemies out as uh, through these straw men arguments until you've actually interacted with them. When you sit down and actually have conversations and you work through some of these issues, you find out that your characteris- characterization of them is probably not as accurate as it was in your mind before you started talking. Yeah, I, I've been discovering that over and over on my YouTube channel as I do dialogue, even with the non-Protestant traditions where our differences are more serious, and yet there can still be a tendency to caricature. And mm-hmm. sometimes we don't actually have an accurate, sympathetic understanding of the other side. We've been listening to my interview with Gavin Ortland from earlier this year. His book is called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. The Case for Theological Triage. In fact, I think it's one of the best books that we've interviewed this past year and why I'm sharing it with you again. A reminder that we have a whole bunch of great books available on our bookshelves here at Songtime. Ones that we would love to clear off those shelves to make room for more books next year, uh, but uh, they need homes to go to. They, they're just looking for the right bookshelf, and I'm sure you have space in your home, or you can give them as gifts to your friends. In fact, they make excellent presents. You can get all of your Christmas shopping done early. Just give us a call. Find out about this book by Gavin Ortland, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, or other books that we have available, and it's like one-stop shopping. All of your friends and family for Christmas Here is the place to shop. Find out more information by giving us a call, 508-362-7070. Well, today, as we continue our year in review, a special message from Timothy Keller. As we continue our reflection over this past year, we'll go to our Summer Psalm series. And in this message, Timothy Keller takes us to Psalm 88, which I would have to say or contend is probably the most difficult psalms to read through because... It's one of only two psalms in the whole book, 150, and only two of them that don't have anything positive to lean into, anything positive to conclude on. In fact, Psalm 88 is so heavy, it is difficult to read unless you've been through it, you've experienced it on your own, and you understand how Christ has actually borne our sorrow for us. Here is Timothy Keller with a closer look at Psalm 88. First thing we learn here is that darkness can last a very long time. The teaching is you can pray and live rightly and still be absolutely plunged in both outside and inside darkness. Now, outside darkness is the darkness of of circumstances out in this, this man's life. This man is having huge problems out there in his life. All of his closest friends and loved ones have been taken away from him, and he's facing imminent death. But there's also a darkness inside. See, if you have external darkness and internally you feel God's with you, you can handle it. But when you have external darkness and internal darkness, that's awful. And guess what? Here's a man who prays and prays and prays and does everything he possibly can. And yet when it's all done, he's still in darkness. And this psalm, at its heart, is giving us this tough message. 
You can be a good person, you can pray like crazy, and everything go wrong, and have no sense even of the presence of God in your life for a long time. That's the first point. And you say, what? Doesn't the Bible say God is always working everything out for good? The Bible also says this, that you may go all of your life and never have any idea what the good purpose is. Darkness, both spiritual and personal, can last a long time. However, times of darkness are some of the very best places to learn about God's grace. How so? This is a prayer. He's talking to God all the way through. He's talking to God, but he is not controlling his temper. It's more of a cross-examination. It's amazing. Look what he's doing. He says, do you show your wonders to the dead, to those who are dead, rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Were your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? You know what he's saying? He's cross-examining God. He's putting him in the dock. He says, I want to praise you. I want to declare your faithfulness to the world. But how can I when I'm being trampled to the ground, deserted, and killed? And that's the reason why in verse 15 he starts to say, From my youth I've been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and I'm in despair. Do you know what he's doing? He's taking the difficulty of his present and he's reading his entire life in light of it. And you know what he's saying? You've never been there for me, God. But this only makes this psalm greater evidence of God's grace. You know why? God is saying, I am your God, not because you put on a happy face every morning, not because you say everything just right, not because you do everything just right, not because you always speak reverently to me in deference. I'm your God because I'm a God of grace. In spite of all the things you do wrong, I'm your God. So dark times can last a long time. But secondly, those times can be the best times to... uh, learn about God's grace. But thirdly, third point, it is especially in times of absolute darkness where not only you don't see God working in your life, but you don't see God working inside your heart either. You don't even feel him present. Those times are perhaps the supreme opportunity for you to become someone great. When you're experiencing both darkness outside and inside, you're getting absolutely nothing out of prayer. And that's important. Oh, we say, oh, I want to pray, and I want to, I want to read the Bible, I want to come to church, I want to, I want to sense God in my life, because you have needs, you know? Because you got a problem, or you got this, or you got that, and you want something from Him. But as soon as things start to get hard, and He's not answering your prayers, and things aren't going the way you want, you start to say, hey, I'm giving up things, I'm stop, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Why isn't God coming through for me? And, because Satan is right about the self-centeredness of the, centeredness of the human heart, but something has begun to happen to this guy. You know why? As bad as this psalm looks, he's screaming and he's bitter and he's despondent before God. Every single thing he does in this psalm is a prayer to God. He's even to the very end when he says, Your darkness is my closest friend, he's saying it to God. He's staying with God, even though he's getting nothing out of it. What does that mean? Satan has been defeated. And I want you to realize that when and almost only when you go into dual darkness, darkness where not only things are happening bad outside, but inside you don't even sense God there, a great choice comes to you. Now we'll see finally whether you got into this relationship to serve me or basically just to get me to serve you. Because when the darkness lifts or lessens, and it will, you will find that the pressure will have turned your heart into something wonderful like pressure turns a lump of coal into a diamond. See, it's only in times of darkness that you can start to get an indomitable soul, a soul that cannot be dominated or daunted. So, darkness can last, 
Darkness can show you the grace of God. Darkness can turn you into something great. But lastly, darkness can be relativized. What do I mean by relativized? Well, when you're in the darkness, you actually do feel it's absolute. This man felt it. In other words, he felt that God's rejection of him was complete, that the darkness was absolute and permanent. But he was wrong. How do we know that? Well, this is a psalm written by the author, not David, but a man named H-E-M-A-N, Heman. And we know from 1 Chronicles 6 that Heman was the leader of the Korahite guild of musicians and poets who wrote psalms. But if Heman helped write the greatest psalms in the Psalter, that means that he has produced some of the greatest artistry in the history of the world. You've got the perspective of, of centuries now to look back and say, okay, so he, God did bring good out of that, but how can I know that God, when I feel abandoned in my darkness, when I feel God has totally rejected me in my darkness, how can I know that's true for me? And the answer is, yes, you can, and here's how you can. End of Psalm 39, turn your face away from me, God. End of Psalm 88, darkness is my closest friend. Does this remind you of anybody? How could it not? Matthew 27, verse 45, from the sixth hour to the ninth, darkness came down over all the land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus Christ on the cross cried, my God, my God, why have you turned your face from me? Why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, the earth shook and the rocks split, the tombs broke open, and the bodies of holy people who had died were raised to life. See, Jesus was truly abandoned, so you can only, you only feel abandoned, but you're not. When Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane and that ultimate darkness was coming down on him and he knew it was coming and he knew it was coming, he didn't abandon you, he died for you. And if Jesus Christ didn't abandon you in his darkness, the ultimate darkness, why in the world would he abandon you in yours? Because Jesus Christ, it can be said truly of Jesus Christ, that darkness on the cross was his only friend. In your darkness, God is still there as your friend. And Jesus was really abandoned, so you can only feel abandoned, but you're not. He's working in that. And do you know what this means? There's an answer to the psalmist question. This sarcastic, angry question in the middle of this psalm has been redeemed. Why? Because in the very middle, he says what? Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Because Jesus Christ died for your sins. The answer is yes. Someday we're going to rise from the dead and praise him because he took our penalty and he took our sins upon him. If you know the resurrection is coming, it's impossible to be in utter darkness. I absolutely love how Timothy Keller handles this psalm that really gives us a picture of what Christ endured for us on our behalf. We can read through the psalms and they can resonate with us at a very deep and visceral level. Uh, We can talk about how we feel completely and utterly abandoned. We can talk about how we feel as though we we are dead, that our soul has died because we have nothing left to live for. We can talk about how we have been cut off from everyone and how we have gone down to the depths of the pit. But when you really read this psalm, what we can conclude is that we only feel this way. We only ever feel abandoned. Jesus was truly abandoned, but God has never abandoned you or I. We feel that we have died, and yet we have not died, but Christ has died. He has gone down into the grave. He has suffered on our behalf. You and I feel some way that we have struggled and suffered, but the truth is 
Christ endured this on our behalf. And in that, we have the beautiful picture of the gospel. Because Christ endured, we don't have to. Because Christ has suffered for our sins, we can be forgiven. A beautiful picture and a beautiful psalm when put in its proper context and not to be seen as our self. The Bible is not really about us. It's about God. And when you see it in its right context, we can see the beauty of the gospel even in Psalm 88. I hope that this encourages you. Pick it up, read it for yourself, and sit a li- linger a little bit longer at the foot of the cross and consider what Christ bore for you. You will be encouraged. I guarantee it. If we have been a blessing to you, now it's your chance to be a blessing to us. In fact, it's one of the only ways that we can stay on the air. If you have been encouraged by our broadcasting, consider your gift, your end-of-the-year donation that helps keep this broadcast continuing to proclaim the gospel. Write to us at Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com or you can look us up on social media. But don't forget to tune in again tomorrow. We'll continue our year in review as we look back on our study in the book of Galatians. This message from Dr. Erwin Lutzer helps us understand the importance of what we contribute to our own salvation. Uh, When you come to Jesus, you don't say, well, I'm trusting Jesus a little bit, but I'm also trusting myself some. You know, it has nothing to do with you. You have to take it from Jesus entirely. You say, well, what's my contribution? I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's your sin. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime and our late founder, Dr. John DeBrine, who has always encouraged you to grow in grace so that you won't groan in disgrace, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse. It's Galatians, I'm sorry, Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him.